This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr.org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. Hello and welcome to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Dr. Adrian Peterson and produced in the studios of WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. I'm Jeff White. This is edition NWS 756 for release on Sunday, August 20th, 2023. On WaveScan today, the diary of a major shortwave station manager in a recent typhoon, and part five of Jonathan Marks's conversation with Dr. Graham Mitten of the BBC. Hurricanes in the Western Pacific and Indian Oceans are called typhoons, and earlier this year a major one hit the U.S. territory of Guam. Typhoon Mawar was the strongest storm to blow across the island in two decades, with sustained winds of 140 miles per hour. The eye of the typhoon crossed the island during the night of Wednesday, May 24th, uprooting trees, wrecking beach areas, damaging buildings, and cutting electricity and water supplies for Guam's 170,000 residents. Directly impacted, of course, were Guam's two major shortwave broadcasters, KSDA and KTWR. The station manager of AWR station, KSDA, Brooke Powers, kept a diary record of their preparations for the storm and the actions they had to take during the aftermath, which he has now shared with us. So here are those diary notes read by Ray Robinson. Thanks, Jeff. Brooke writes, We started preparing on Sunday the 21st of May since the storm was heading our way. We took down all the canopies and awnings around the facility and secured all the loose materials that could potentially fly around in the wind and damage the buildings or vehicles. On Monday, we then secured the staff housing by closing all the typhoon shutters and also topped off the 4,000-gallon diesel fuel tank, which supplies the main generator, providing the station with sufficient power for the facilities and transmitters when the island power is disrupted. On Tuesday, we made sure the 10,000-gallon water cistern was full, which supplies all the on-site houses with drinking water, and that staff members had picked up sufficient food for the following few days. By midday, we'd placed all the vehicles and equipment into the maintenance garage bays and any additional vehicles we parked in sheltered areas near the concrete buildings. All antenna-related rigging was checked to make sure it was as secure as possible since it's designed to withstand the winds by remaining in place. Tuesday night, the winds began to pick up and I stayed in the transmitter building to monitor the equipment to keep the transmitters on as long as possible. Transmitters 1, 2 and 5 stayed on all night during the first half of the storm. Transmitters 3 and 4 were scheduled to be off anyway due to the tower replacement project. But when the winds intensified on Wednesday, all the antennas suffered enough damage to make it impossible to continue broadcasting. 
The storm was very slow moving and the typhoon force winds continued all day and all night Wednesday. On Thursday morning they began letting up so we could begin assessing the damage and we started the repairs on Antenna 2 on Thursday afternoon. We also worked on repairing Antenna 5 on Thursday and Friday and were able to begin using Antenna 5 on Friday night the 26th of May. Antenna 1 suffered the most damage and would take approximately 3-5 to five days to repair if everything had gone well, which it didn't. More about that later. The island power and water were lost Tuesday night during the storm and the AWR main generator was able to continue to provide power for the facility and on-site housing. Once Antenna 2 was repaired and we were able to resume broadcasting, we then needed additional diesel fuel to continue to power the station. However, due to the local government mandates to prioritise essential services, our suppliers weren't allowed to deliver diesel to our sites, and if we did nothing, we'd run out within a day or so. So we went to several service stations with 55-gallon drums to try to keep up with the demand of our thirsty generator, which was consuming around 500 gallons a day. The lines to get fuel at the gas stations were up to a mile long at times, requiring people to sleep in their cars in order to get the fuel they needed. Fortunately, there were some stations where the lines for diesel fuel were shorter, but it was still a real challenge. On the Sabbath, May the 27th, we had our church service out at the park, and God provided a lovely day in the midst of all the chaos. On Sunday the 28th we were trying to dig out due to all the damage to the trees falling across the road blocking access to and from staff homes and the radio station. Ben Stern, the maintenance director, had parked a backhoe at his house during the storm so that he could move any fallen trees as soon as possible, allowing us to get to the antennas, but there remained a lot of debris, branches, tree trunks etc. Our maintenance crew was still working on the clean-up more than a month later. On Tuesday afternoon the 30th, the main generator voltage regulator failed and therefore would not provide the correct voltage to the building, so this put us off the air once again. Since our secondary power source was now gone, we needed to focus on restoring power instead of antenna repairs, and we were unable to broadcast until this challenge was solved. In addition, since the power was gone, humidity would start to affect the equipment inside the building, which included transmitters, computers and high-voltage support equipment. At a minimum, we needed to find a way to provide air conditioning to the building to protect our investments and also reduce the amount of time necessary to get the broadcast equipment back online when any large source of power was restored. Our 20-year-old 60-kilowatt backup generator that's been used in the past for such a scenario and that had been used just two months prior was found to be inoperable due to rats having chewed the wiring to bits. Absolutely so discouraging. Two of our smaller generators were deployed to provide basic power for refrigeration of food in the houses. On Wednesday the 31st of May, first thing in the morning, I set out to find a rental generator either to power the entire station, including the transmitters, or just the basic necessities. Since the wired and wireless phone services were all down, I had to visit all the possible rental locations in person, and I received the same response at each location. There are no generators available to rent. I then asked if there were any generators to buy and came up with the same response at all locations except one. Their response was that they had one 40 kilowatt generator left, which five people were looking at, and whoever paid for it first could take it. 
I contacted our headquarters treasurer in the middle of the night his time to request for authorization to purchase the unit after explaining the situation, and he gave me a verbal approval. Two minutes later, I told the salesperson to write up the contract. Five minutes after that, one of the other people interested in the generator showed up to purchase the same unit. They were disappointed, but I was praising God. The generator was delivered to the site that afternoon and was installed and working the next day. This provided the air conditioning and lighting we needed to protect the radio station from humidity that could affect air-cooled transformers and high-voltage bus bars. It also provided sufficient power for the rigging crew to continue their work during the day, and it provided basic needs for the housing in the evenings. On Thursday the 1st of June, we now continued to look for ways to get the main generator repaired. At this point, we needed to have a technician come to the site to troubleshoot the problem, but all the local technicians were tasked to cover essential service locations, and so none could come. I went back to the location that we purchased the 40 kilowatt generator from and talked to their mechanic. He indicated that there was another business that might have a technician and perhaps the part we needed. But unfortunately, it took another 10 days before the technician was able to come out to our site to install the part. On Friday the 2nd, I continued to try to get a technician, but without any success. Fortunately, the first 1,000 gallons of the 3,000 gallon order of diesel was delivered by our supplier. The following week, on Tuesday the 6th of June, late in the evening, we received power back from the Island Power Company. We were so excited and started broadcasting again on Wednesday the 7th after checking all the equipment and making sure nothing was damaged. We were able to broadcast on and off for four days whenever the island power was available, but unfortunately on Sunday the 11th one of the power lines that feeds the station was disconnected and therefore we were unable to broadcast again. The island power company was contacted and they indicated that they'd send a crew as soon as possible. In other words, when a large percentage of the island power grid was restored, we would be in a huge list of people that also needed their power restored individually. In the meantime, we were back to the 40 kilowatt generator protecting station equipment and providing power for the rigging crew, but no broadcasting until the main generator was repaired or island power restored. We continued to request our diesel supplier to send diesel fuel, since our tanks were now down to only around 500 gallons. Also, our water system was empty, and the island water company couldn't provide enough pressure to reach our site due to the high elevation. We contacted the village mayor and requested assistance. In the meantime, we began collecting water in five-gallon buckets from water tankers that were positioned in the various villages about five miles away. The water was usable for washing and flushing toilets, but drinking water needed to be purchased or boiled, which took up time each day in order to provide this necessity for the staff and visiting workers on site. Eventually, about five days later, the mayor was able to arrange for multiple tanker trucks to deliver water and fill our cistern again. Now we were able to refocus on getting the main generator repaired in order to get back on the air. It continued to be a challenge to get diesel delivered in a timely manner. On Wednesday the 14th, we were finally able to get a technician to the site to complete the repair of the main generator. We were so excited that it now provided the proper voltage to operate and broadcast again. However, at the end of the repair, the generator breaker which connects the power to the building failed. So disappointing again. 
Fortunately, we had a spare breaker, but it was too late to install it that evening, so we started the next morning and got the £150 breaker installed and functioning. When we went to start the main generator, it wouldn't turn on. Okay, needless to say, we were disappointed yet again. We contacted the same technician and fortunately he was able to come back out to our site and found the starter was defective. He replaced the starter and our main generator was then back on. This meant we could start broadcasting again, the rigging crew could do their work and AWR housing was provided with power again. Another problem occurred where the main generator would shut down periodically about every 20 hours and an additional part was needed to fix that issue. By Friday the 16th, the water pressure from the Island Water Company was finally sufficient to begin to fill our water system again. This meant we no longer needed to ration the water we use and no longer needed to boil water for cooking and drinking. Eventually, on Monday the 19th, the main generator part was replaced, which has resolved the issue with the generator unexpectedly turning off each day. We continued to contact the power company to restore power, but received less than encouraging responses from their customer service representatives. Meanwhile, the rest of the people and businesses on the island, who rely on island power, are experiencing rolling power outages as the power grid is still not stable. Off-island crews have been contracted to help in the restoration of the power grid system. We pray they're able to achieve this soon as running on the generator fueled by diesel is significantly more expensive, but we're thankful to be on the air. On Tuesday, June the 20th, we were able to continue the repairs to Antenna 1 and receive delivery of another 2,500 gallons of diesel. We are trusting God. This has been a difficult time, but we see God working in providing answers, solutions and patience every step of the way. On Thursday, June the 23rd, more than a month after this all began, we finished the repairs on Antenna 1 and were able to resume regularly scheduled broadcasts. Praise God. Island Power was eventually restored the following week after a few days of troubleshooting by the power company who located an underground short on one of the phases. Let's just say this has been a challenging month. So that was diary notes there from Brooke Powers, station manager at KSDA in Guam, describing the trials and tribulations of their recovery after Typhoon Mawa hit the island in May of this year. Back to you, Jeff. Thanks very much, Ray, and thanks to Brooke Powers at KSDA for sharing his remarkable story with us. During the last few weeks, we've been presenting an interview with Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of BBC World Service Audience Research. The interview was conducted by Jonathan Marks, host of Radio Netherlands Media Network. Today, part five of that conversation begins with Jonathan Marks pointing out that the BBC's medium wave station in England was relayed by the Dutch shortwave station to Africa back in the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there seems to be some evidence around sort of 1930-31 that that was a contributing factor. It wasn't the only factor, of course, but for for the BBC to build its own shortwave transmitters, because uh, up to that point, they only had medium wave, because the Dutch were picking up the medium wave signal and uh, retransmitting it on shortwave to Africa. I didn't know that. Yeah. And, radio, and the radio was an immensely attractive and even revolutionary in terms of lifestyles and life attitudes. And I'll tell you a story about that too, if you want to ask me. When I really began to, when I really began to realize just what a huge story this was. 
following my, you know, I discovered things that Ken Post, my supervisor, who gave me this idea in the first place, had never even imagined. So can you give me some examples then of... Uh... Well, I in in, Tan, in Tanzania, what I decided, I couldn't cover the whole country. It would be absurd. It's far too big a country and there's far too much. So I thought, what, what really matters? Well, Tanzania, if you can imagine, it's like a square. It's almost exactly square, Tanzania. And the population are distributed all around the edges of that square. Dar es Salaam in the Far East, Mwanza in the Far Northwest, Arusha and Moshi in the North, uh, Mtwara and Mwanza in the South, and Kigoma in the Far West. Kigoma and Ujiji in the Far West. That's where um, Stanley met Livingston. Not a huge population, but there is a population there. But in the middle, there's not, not a lot of people, not many people. There's a, a Tabora and a Dodoma in the middle, but they're not big population centers. Most of the population is on the periphery. So that's what I said. I'll go to the periphery because how does this country come together when people are on the periphery and they may be looking to Congo in the west, to Uganda in the northwest, to Kenya in the north, to Mozambique in the southeast, to Malawi and to Rhodesia in the southwest. So I chose uh, Arusha Moshi in the north, um, Mwanza in the northwest, Kigoma in the far west, Mtwara and Mwanza in the south, and Dar es Salaam and its surroundings in the far east, as it were. I couldn't, in the end, go to Mtwara Mwanza because they were closed by the government because of the because of the support that the Tanzanian government was given to the guerrilla movements seeking to overthrow the governments in Mozambique and Rhodesia. A lot of the training camps were in the south. Also, of course, you had the border with Mozambique. They didn't want people like me doing research in the villages when all sorts of other things were going on that they didn't want me to know about. Fair enough. So I didn't go. But so I was looking at the periphery. And so I was uh, researching and talk, you know, I, we were doing a, a, a sample survey of people living in those areas. And it when I got to Kigoma, you can't go anywhere. You can now, but not then. You couldn't go anywhere in Kigoma region without using a boat. Because uh, it's Kigoma is on the lake, but there are no roads south of Kigoma. There are now, but there weren't then. Kigoma was fed by railway and it had an air service. I went there by train, the famous German-built railway that came from Dar es Salaam all the way to Lake Tanganyika, Lake Kigoma. There was a steamer on the, there still is, a steamer on the lake. I couldn't get on the steamer because I wouldn't, when I got off it to go to one of the villages, I wouldn't be able to go back until the steamer came back, which might be a month later. So the government lent me their launch, which is very nice of them. And I went by a government motor launch to two villages, Kalia and Mgambo. They're still there and they're about a hundred miles south of Kigoma on the lake. They have no other way of getting in or out, but they do now, but they had then no other way of getting in or out other than by boat, ship, canoe, or walking. This village was an eye-opener to me, both villages rather, but one of them in particular. By the way, there are still descendants there of Arab slavers. So the village was a mix of Arab and African people, their adults and children. They were a, a, a racially mixed and culturally and ethnically mixed in that way. All spoke Swahili. One of, some of the older ones spoke Arabic. They all they had radio. They didn't all have a radio set. They listened together. They would meet and listen to the radio. It was the week when uh, 
uh, Prime Minister Wilson was seeking to reduce and restrict the migration of East African Asians. Very complicated story, but simply put, the independent governments of Kenya, Uganda and Tanzania weren't making it very easy for Asians to uh, assimilate and become citizens of the new countries. Tanzania actually was very good and many Asians uh, took Tanzanian citizenship. They served in the government, there were some elected members of parliament and mostly the Tanzanian Asians stayed. It was not so in Kenya. Uh, they were given a, a hard time and uh, many of them left in large numbers in the autumn, the end of the year, 1967, the beginning of 68. And I was doing these interviews in this village just when all this was happening. Huge moral and political issues raised. Why should these people not stay? Why shouldn't they think of themselves as Kenyans? Why should we, on the other hand, refuse them entry when they have British passports and so on and so forth? The people in that village could see the arguments, they could see the arguments for, they could see the arguments again, they could see the Asians not always doing themselves a favour by being a bit racist sometimes, they could see the arguments that they were, you know, sent, you know, hither and yon by, by conflicting moral, political, ethical, racial, cultural issues. The quality of that conversation that day would have not wouldn't have disgraced an Oxford University common room. I was amazed. Where did that information come from? From the radio. From which radio? Mainly the BBC. They listened to Radio Tanzania. They listened to Voice of Kenya. They listened to uh, Radio Netherlands. They listened to Voice of America. They listened to Radio Voice of the Gospel, perhaps the most successful ever Christian radio in Africa. Had huge audiences throughout East Africa, and discussed politics. Not any and philosophy, not just religion, but they talked about everything. Voice of the Gospel was a wonderful radio station out of Addis Ababa. By the maybe, way, maybe you can go into a bit more detail about that because many of the people who worked at uh, Radio Voice of the Gospel in Addis Ababa later went on to have careers in the BBC. They most certainly did. Satish Jacob in in um, in Delhi now retired, but he went to become Mark Talley's deputy in in Delhi. He was he was there. Uh, Blair Blair Thompson, BBC correspondent, he he was trained there. And there were several others who had, they had a very very good newsroom. It was a great radio station, Lutheran, funded by the Lutheran Church, American and German and others. Um, brilliant station, employed local, lots of local people, lots of Africans got their training in journalism there. It was a great radio station. But it wasn't just religious broadcasting. No, they did do religious broadcasting and very popular that was too, because it wasn't uh, in your face evangelism. It was actually trying to explain what the Bible was about, and what Christianity was about. And it allowed debate and discussion and, and that, which is, it, it's what, it did what a good religious radio station should do, which is to talk about religious matters, but to allow debate and discussion and so on. So I, I, I that's a digression, but I really admired Radio Voice of the Gospel, not from listening to it, although I did occasionally, but from what the audience said about it. It was highly respected and had brilliant broadcasts, not only in English, but Swahili and in other languages, French and others. So how did you organize? No, sorry, so what I want to say, this was, this was, you know, this discussion, this in a village, most of the people were illiterate. They did, they had some who were literate in Arabic. By the way, they, I saw a, a few Arabic language newspapers in that village because the, 
the descendants of the slave traders who'd settled there and married African wives and, and raised children and so on had kept Arabic alive. They taught Arabic uh, as well as uh, Swahili. And so the only me the only printed media I saw in in that village in the, in Kalyar anyway was was uh, was in Arabic, which I thought was interesting. But what really you know impressed me was the quality of debate and discussion and the level of knowledge that they had was astonishing. So this was entirely uh, they'd got it from from radio. They'd got the ideas and the thoughts and the facts and figures and so on and so forth, mostly from radio. That was Dr. Graham Mitten, former head of audience research at the BBC World Service, speaking with Jonathan Marks on media network Vintage Vault, which is available on the Internet. We had ways scan today with a traditional song from Guam called Guam Take Me Back by Jesse Bays and Ruby Santos, sung in English and the local language Chamorro. Thanks for listening to WaveScan, the international DX program from Adventist World Radio. Researched and written in Indianapolis by Adrian Peterson. Next week, we'll have the story of LM Radio in Southern Africa. WaveScan is heard weekly on KSDA in Guam, AWR relays in various locations, WRMI in Florida, WWCR in Tennessee, Voice of Hope Africa in Zambia, and IRRS Italy. Send reception reports directly to the station you're listening to. Reports for KSDA and AWR sites should go to qsl at awr.org. Other correspondence, not reception reports, can be sent to wavescan at awr.org. I'm Jeff White at WRMI Shortwave in Okeechobee, Florida. Till next week. Good listening, everyone.
This is the Adventist World Radio, and you are listening to the Voice of Hope. For more information, please feel free to write to us. Our email address is Bible at awr.org, or you could also call us on WhatsApp at plus one two two four two 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 zero seven seven seven. 